2 Corinthians. Before we begin, uh, just uh, some things that I'd like to share with you. Uh, it's been a while since I've shared some books, and, and uh, there's, it was a while for me that it was pretty dry, and now I seem to have found uh, some sources that are uh, very helpful that you've heard me talk about uh, <coughs> the understanding of the purpose of a church or the, the, um, uh, the marks of a church, and you may have uh, heard of this book before, and that's the Nine Marks Ministry uh, is Mark Dever. He is a Southern Baptist, uh, uh, one of the, uh, uh, the fruits of uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary is in uh, Washington, D.C., has a uh, Baptist church down there, Reformed Baptist, a uh, very good writer. Um, his book that has uh, been read and studied by many people is called Nine Marks. That's the name of a kind of a corollary ministry that he has uh, from his church. And it's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, context says, these different marks are ex, expo, ex, uh, expositional preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, a biblical church discipline, a concern for discipleship and growth, and biblical church leadership. Uh, he, being a Reformed Baptist, uh, there are two differences that we would have being Presbyterian is one that, that did not practice infant baptism and they are not Presbyterian, they're, they're Congregationalists and he's a he's very pro-Congregationalist kind of go government so uh, um, that's, uh, that's some of the differences that we would have with uh, this book and then uh, uh, one of his uh, students and just came out I think just recently from Nine Marks is um, from uh, a pastor and um, in his own right, and his name is uh, Thabiti uh, Ana Anabi Wili. Uh, and if you want it, all you got to do is, if you want the book, just Google what is a health, what is healthy church membership, which is goes off of this. So remember, if you, of course, I have the books. If you want to take a look and see, you know, if you if you're interested in this, but. He just goes off of uh, and uses um, as a platform Mark's book. I'm trying to find the table of contents here. And it says a healthy church member is an expositional listener. A healthy church member is a biblical theologian. A healthy church member is, is gospel-saturated. A healthy church member is genuinely converted. A healthy church member is a biblical evangelist. A healthy church member is a committed member. A healthy church member seeks discipline. A healthy church member is a growing disciple. A healthy church member is a humble, a humble follower and a prayer warrior. So um, there are uh, some books I'm going to be kind of uh, presenting over the course of maybe the next couple months. And just to let you know, I mean, this is the remaining months are going to be kind of uh, hit or miss. Uh, with me, it's ne in two weeks. I'll be in Alabama, preaching again at First uh, Presbyterian Church uh, to uh, the saints there. 
And then uh, there'll be two weeks vacation, uh, the, the 12th and the 19th in July. And then in August, we're kind of playing it by ear of where we are with the search committee and my availability between there and September. So um, just keep in prayer the, the organization. We do have people filling the pulpit uh, during that time. Um, and um, um, so that's, uh, we're, you know, I'm glad for that. You'll be uh, taken care of well by that. Uh, from the leadership of the church. So continue to pray as I prepare the message down there and we move ahead here and you move ahead. Uh, I move with you together until that day, until uh, the Lord uh, brings this person that uh, he desires to be here at, uh, at Hope Church. Let's pray as I open up God's word. Dear God, I ask you to again as others have already, both corporately and privately, that you'd be glorified by this gathering of your saints today. That, Lord, by the very uh, coming to worship and also, Lord, hearing your word and desiring the fellowship are the marks of, as we have been uh, reading this morning or talking about these books, are the marks that these gentlemen have, have uh, been uh, pulling out of your word, that these are the signs of people who desire to hear your word taught and applied and to be filling in their own hearts and being transforming their minds. Uh, so, Father, that the church would be strengthened and that, Father, that we would be able to be witnesses, biblical witnesses, for who you are to us and to them out in the world. Uh, because, Lord, we do not know who you are calling and who you have placed your uh, love of election upon, and we have no idea what that, who that is. But, Lord, our call is very clear, is that we are to spread the gospel to as many as we see and many as possible by our own lives, by the witness and the abilities of this church, and by the supporting of missionaries around the globe. So, Father, we pray that as others around the world are, have gathered together and are gathering together to glorify you, Lord, we pray that we would join in their song of praise to you uh, as we gather this morning. We praise you and thank you, God, for being a father who has uh, made a plan for us and has provided for us care and shelter and, and um, a love that uh, you keep on showing us and as sending your son Jesus to redeem us and to save us and to procure for us salvation that not only lasts a day but for all eternity and we thank you for the triune God in the Holy Spirit as we uh, recognize his presence and power in our life by preserving us and by changing our very hearts and by giving us the ability to be able to desire and even hear this word today. So we ask, Lord, for your power and strength to be felt. As Paul and others have testified to, it is the power of God unto salvation. And so we continually pray that the gospel will be preached, that the gospel will be desired, and that men and women and children will come here with an appetite to be fed with it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're looking at verses 
uh, starting with verse 23 of chapter 1, going to uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. But I call God to witness against me, it was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I have wrote... And I, I wrote as I did, so that when I came I not, might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment must, by the majority, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if what I have forgiven, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Turn with me uh, just as a Again, sort of a, to prime the pump. Turn with me to, keep your hands in 2 Corinthians, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Remember, Paul wrote this letter as well. We've looked at pretty extensively, and I may put together a, a little, or copy a table that I found of everything I've been talking about the last couple weeks about uh, the different uh, years or the different uh, letters uh, that we've heard, we've read that uh, we have only two of possibly the four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and the two and the possible and the upcoming third visit, and how that all uh, uh, worked out and transpired. Just so you have that as a uh, as a guide as you read Second Corinthians again, may be helpful. Of course, if you have a, a study Bible, that's that's great as well. And I. I, I may have told you this, but the best one I've ever had is the ESV study Bible. It is like having a Bible college. Uh, it is, uh, it is, it has uh, everything in it. I mean, it is, it's, it's got uh, uh, theology in it. It's got biblical theology, systematic theology. It's got how you see Christ from the beginning to the end. Uh, it, he, it, the uh, writers talk about. Why we have a, how did we get the Bible, the canon, or how did all we get these books together, the decisions that were made, how God was involved in the process, uh, the study notes, the maps, the, the charts, or uh, just, it's, it's a Bible college. It's just like going to Bible college. So I would recommend investing in that book because it's a great book to have. Um, but turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians as we read Paul 
um, talking about wisdom. And, you know, in these first uh, verses that we've looked at, 2 Corinthians, Paul is appealing back to that second letter, which is really, <laughs> we have as the first letter. Uh, there's an unknown first letter and an unlearned, un unknown third letter, but to us we have First and Second uh, Corinthians, and Paul writes 1 Corinthians because of the disunity and the, uh, the, uh, the schisms that are going on within the body of Corinth. Now remember, this is not an old church. This is people coming out of paganism out of Corinth. A, a very powerful, very wealthy, uh, very um, um, metropolitan kind of, kind of church, kind of a city with throngs of people and uh, uh, philosophers galore and pagan worship and temples all over the place. And these, this is where God has taken these people out of. So you remember, they're not people that have been sitting around just you know, chilling and understanding what this Old Testament book was all about. Didn't understand that it pointed to Jesus. Didn't understand because they're, most of these are pagans. Most of these are un, uh, you know, not Jews. Uh, most of these are, 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 um, are Gentile people who came from out of all different and a neglectic uh, background and are gathered together and are, are uh, really working their way through what this all is about. So they haven't been together for 10 years, just barely even five years together trying to work through it. And looking at it, at the very beginning, we see Paul having to write a letter and then writing the second, uh, the, the first Corinthians to them. And, and it's, you know, it's pretty tough. He writes some, you know, don't do this and make sure you do this. And you've got, you know, immorality and you guys are allowing it. And you guys, you know, you're, you're, the Lord's Supper is not being honored. And there's, and there's uh, disunity and there's arguments going on. And, and there's uh, uh, unlawful lawsuits going against each other. And there's, uh, uh, there's people who are thinking that they're in with God, so they're doing these signs and wonders and thinking that, they're, that they're, they've got something better than everybody else, so they're ostentatious with their spiritual gifts. And, and so we see that whole, you know, chapters 11, 12, and 13 in, in, uh, in this Corinthians, 1 Corinthians talking about, wait a minute, you know, God is a God, not a God of disunity and not a God of chaos. And, and Corinthian church, that's what you look like. Now, he's not throwing them out. As we've said, he calls them saints. He has a lot of hope for them. So he, uh, he writes this book to them, and, and then he goes back, and he's going to reference this letter. Excuse me. He re referenced this letter through 2 Corinthians about things I've read to you, or you've read about me, or you acknowledge, and I've written to you before. And Paul goes back and dips back into those things because it's God's word. But if you, you look at verse uh, 18 of chapter 1 of, of 1 Corinthians, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Remember we read that this whole, these super apostles have, have infiltrated this, this, very, this young church and are, are questioning and they're in there thinking that you know, they've, they are more powerful maybe in their physical attributes and we've, we've already don't want to keep on beating Paul up on that he's, you know, he's not Robert Redford, that's for sure. 
and uh, you know that he's not the best looking guy in the world nor does he have a attributes of being a great speaker um, and he he's had a lot of issues in his life he's had uh, you know uh, a lot of suffering going on in his life and and these super apostles and are going to uh, to the people and saying man if this guy's been sent by God if he's anointed of God he's a prophetic example of it so he says has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe for Jesus excuse me for Jews demand signs and Greek seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and, and folly to Gentiles but to those who are called called by God special calling here those who are called both Jews and Greeks see the world now not just a geographical nation a geopolitical nation excuse me Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men for consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to worldly standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth but God chose that what was foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord and when I and, and when I came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of spirit and in power now that's not meaning that there were signs and wonders every time he spoke but it was by God pulling people's hearts and breaking people's hearts and calling people from death to life and converting people and regenerating people that's the power that was being displayed people who were dead and were now alive people who didn't get it now got it that's what he's talking about here that's the power not to be not to be entertained and not to be wowed but to be wowed by a real spiritual power changing people's hearts I was in verse 3 I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words for wisdom but of wisdom but in demonstration of spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God yet among the mature we do impart wisdom although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory none of the rulers of this age understood this for if they did they would have not crucified the Lord of glory but as it is written what no eye has seen no ear heard nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit for the Spirit searches everything even the depths of God for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person who is in him 
which is in him, excuse me. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit, we, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is, from, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God, given us by God. And we impart this, now don't forget, he's talking about the we, the apostolic we, remember we talked about this, he's talking about the group of apostles. He says, and we impart these in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now again, remember that Paul is defending himself in this letter. Paul is given an apology or a defense of who he is. And he appeals back to these people after this mournful, sorrowful letter that we've read about. They have now changed. He was hoping that they would change. Paul heard from Timothy that things are not good, Paul. Things are not going well in Corinth. So Paul, when he's in Ephesus, instead of remember he was going to go through Macedonia, up to Corinth, and back up to Macedonia, and then back down to Corinth, and then he said, you can send me off, he says in, 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 in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, he said he was, he was going to uh, go to Corinth for just one visit. Somewhere along the line, Paul mentions somewhere, we don't have that written anywhere, that Paul says, I'm going to actually meet you twice. We don't know what happened, but now, this is why he is being ridiculed and being brought up on charges of being a coward, of being fickled, because they were saying, Paul says this, and then he says this. How can we believe anything he says? So Paul is in Ephesus, hears that the place is going down in fire, takes the express train to Corinth, takes the all-night red-eye, to Corinth and goes directly there for this sorrowful visit. Doesn't stay, and he's telling us why all these plans have changed. He gives us a, an understanding and a theological understanding at that, which we hope to unfold uh, for you in these passages, that, that Paul does everything from a theological understanding of who God is in his life, who God is in the church, who God is as God of the universe. Paul is saying, regardless of whatever happens, as Peter does, as we go, we, we looked at 1 Peter, Peter says, you know, get yourself prepared. You know, this isn't a one-time deal. You need to go through this, you need to go through these drills every so often so that when the when the, the um, accident occurs or when this event takes place and this disaster takes place, you're going to know to be ready. So he is, he is, uh, he is telling them that, uh, you know, that everything is done from a theological perspective. For Paul, theology is the magnetic north. You shake up that compass and what happens? Boom. It goes right back to north. This is what Paul's saying. It's going to happen in your life. The Bible tells us. We're going to get shook up, and that compass is going to look like this. But what's going to happen? When you let it go, boom, it goes right back. That's who we are to be. 
We are to be, our theology, our understanding of the Bible, our understanding of God is always to take us back to that Jesus, to God, to the Holy Spirit, to the triune God, to the purpose. That's when he says, I have the mind of Christ. He's not saying, now I understand everything that Jesus knows. He's not saying that Paul says, now as you jokingly hear me say all the time, I have that burning bush that I know exactly. You hear people talk about being in the center of God's will. Folks, I don't know how to be in the center of God's will for my life other than what's here. This is what's here. This is going to keep me in the center of understanding God's will, God's revealed will. Everything else, there is no burning bush for me to go to to say, as you've heard me say, my job, relationships, go on vacation. What do you do? You know, we pray about this, but we hear people saying, I've got to be in God's perfect will. Well, forget about it because you don't know it. There's no way of anybody knowing. And, 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 and Paul is not saying that now he does has it. He understands the mind of Christ. Now, folks, we just went. We just went through John, right? The Gospel of John. Do we understand how Christ's mind worked? Yeah, well, we do. We understand. We understand that he came what? To glorify the Father. He came to understand perfect obedience. He came to give his life as a ransom. That's the mind of Christ. He looks at redemptive history, looking at Genesis, understanding Revelation, and sees the whole picture and said yes. As we looked at last week, Jesus is the yes of the gospel. He, was, he said yes. He's the yes of all the covenants. He's the yes of all the promises. He's the yes to all of us. This is my son who I'm well pleased. Follow him. He's got the yes of the father. Jesus understands God's redemptive history. We now understand God's redemptive history. We don't have an insight of every decision that we have to make. That's why Paul is saying, you know, God opened up a door in Macedonia. He went that way. He was going to meet Timothy, uh, Titus. All of a sudden, Titus didn't come. He got worried. He, you know, he responded to what, what occasions and what things came up. That's what he's trying to tell them, that you can't understand God's will always perfectly, except when we go to the word of God. And how does God, what is, this, what is the redemptive story? Well, we understand that story. That's what it's all about. From Genesis to Revelation, we understand God's story. That's what he is talking about. We have the mind of Christ. We see that Jesus came to be the Savior, the Redeemer, because we know that we needed him. And how he unfolded that, that's what it's all about. Now, I, you know, I always had an issue with the bands, what would Jesus do? Because you know what? I ain't Jesus. You Jesus? I'm not Jesus. Do you know what it is to be perfect? I certainly don't. Do you know what Jesus would have done in that situation? What he would have thought? I have the clue what he would have done. I don't have a clue. What would Jesus do? I do have a clue of what Jesus did. He died on the cross. He died for my sins. He was raised from the dead. He showed the power of God, the love of God. He showed the judgment of God. He spoke of heaven. He spoke of hell. I can see all of that. I understand what Jesus did. But what would Jesus do? I can't wear that bracelet. Because I don't know what Jesus would do. I can't think like Jesus. I don't have Jesus' mind perfectly for every decision of every minute of my life. But I do when it comes to 
understanding God's will for his church, for our lives, coming to follow Christ. And he gives us that understanding. And I think that's where Paul is coming from when he uses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think, 16. Um, so here we go. He says, he's talked about this wisdom of God. Last week we looked at, he says, for I, uh, in verse 12 of chapter uh, 1 of 2 Corinthians, he says, For I boast in this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in a world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not earthly wisdom. Now notice, he's already talked about earthly wisdom in 1 Corinthians. He's, he's given a chapter and a half or two chapters or more about wisdom. So he's expecting them to understand what he wrote before and to go back to what was worldly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And he says, I didn't act that way. I wrote about it. I told you about it. Why would I go back and do that? He says, because I, I'm driven by my theology. I understand the very grace of God. That's what drives me. That's what makes me act the way that I act. He is never secular. He is always under the, the umbrella of God's love, God's redemptive love. I went to a wedding yesterday and it was like, it was so hard to hear everything that was being said because it were just so empty, hollow words talking about love. Opening up, opening up John's gospel about Jesus being at the wedding, changing the water to wine, and the interpretation this person gave was so nauseating. It was so wrong. But you know what? How could the bride and the groom argue with what he just said because it made him feel good it made everybody feel good being there forget about truth forget about context forget about what it meant forget about what chapter 13 of the the hallmark card glore of all those verses about love you and i know that they're all in christ and boy when you read those word for word and you understand that jesus is the very goal and center of all those that kind of love, you and I realize Hallmark can't come close to even capturing that. So he says here, he says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you, re what you read and acknowledge, and I hopefully fully acknowledge. Remember, there was a total almost rebellion in Corinth. And so now we see, by God's grace, by Paul trusting in God's sovereign election, God's sovereign work in that church, Paul is the... <laughs> is the father of the church. Paul planted that church. They owe everything to Paul by God's grace working through Paul. They're Christians because of Paul's ministry. So he is going like, You're, how can you turn against me? Did you see what God did in your life through my ministry? I need to defend myself? This is what he's heartbroken about. That they would side with these super apostles who were coming with the pow and the wow and going after Paul and then picking up, and we looked last week, at picking up and making judgments without knowing the full story, just to degrade Paul and them getting the glory and them finding more power and more people to be behind them. But what Paul is happy about, Titus came to him and said, Paul, that bad visit, I mean that painful visit, that painful letter, God used it. These, you, the majority of the church loves you, understands that you are the apostle that God speaks through you. Because remember, 
if God is working through the apostles and we get revelation from the apostles and we get the word of God from the apostles, deny Paul, you deny Christ. You deny his word. Now that's what Paul is worrying about. He is worrying about these people's salvation. But he trusts. He trusts in God's work here. He trusted in what he saw as genuine conversions. So we see that in chapter, maybe verses 12 through 14, we see that, that, God, that, that Paul is moved by his, his theology here. And then he says in um, uh, verses 15 through 22, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Meaning that he said, I did tell you that I was going to come twice and come twice, why? To give twice to the collection that was going to Jerusalem. That's what it was. I was going to come back to you twice so that you could give grace and give a gift twice he says and for him to be present with him twice he says that one time in, in first corinthians chapter 16 you know i don't want to just come for a visit like a drive-through visit there's paul bye paul he didn't want that he wanted he wanted to spend some time with him quality time with him so he says i wanted to visit you on my way to macedonia and come back to you from macedonia and have you send my, me on my way to judea with the collection but what were they saying they were saying, hey, Paul wants to come back twice because he wants twice the money from you guys. That's why he wants it. He wants to pocket the money. And he says that surely God is faithful. Our word to you is, has been not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom he proclaimed, whom we, the apostles, proclaimed among you, Silas and Timothy and I, it was not yes and no, but it was yes. And this is where we talked about as as uh, Jill so wonderfully put out, that we've under, the children have come to understand that the Ten Commandments point to Jesus. It's not just a bunch of laws. They point to who Jesus is. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter, we, everyone, collectively, the saints of, of God and the people of God collectively say we agree, we confirm this as a covenant that God has made with us. And then he says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Notice now, he now appoints, he goes back to the work of Christ here. So now he's looking at a Christology. He goes back to who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Who was Jesus? And as he says, he says, he was, um, with, uh, as God established us with you in Christ, he has anointed us, he says, who has um, I'm sorry, uh, verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus' last name was not Christ. Christ means Messiah. Until Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, he ceased to be, he yet to be the, the true Messiah. Even though he was going to be, no one saw that happening. And then when he became it, then all of a sudden his name becomes Christ. Jesus Christ, he is the confirmed, approved Messiah. So now he is Jesus, the Christ. So you see, he is the Son of God, he is the Christ. And then he tells them, this is how you live accordingly. Based upon your theology, based upon your Christology, who is Jesus? Turn with me to Philippians. Very familiar passage. Chapter 2. Notice, he's telling us something from an ethical, behavioral perspective to do something. 
chapter 2, verse 1 of Philippians. So if there was any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He is not telling them to go do that. He is now giving them a reason to do that. And here is the reason. Who? Now Paul gives them a basis, a ground for being the people of God. He gives them Christology. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He is not saying, what would Jesus do? He is saying, this is what Jesus has done. Now do. You see the difference? But what would Jesus do makes us moralists. By doing what Jesus has done makes us people who are grateful and live according to the standard of who Christ is out of just just gratefulness. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Why? Because he's king. We are subjects of the king. So we live according to the dictates of the king. We we reap the benefits of being in his kingdom. We better honor the king. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then he says, therefore, based upon the Christology I just gave you, my beloved, he says, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but now in my absence, work out that salvation. And remember what I, remember the, the, the illustration I gave you when I talk about the work out salvation? Remember you're kneading dough, right? And you make sure that every corner of that pie dish, make sure that that gets dough. Not any corner is empty that you push it out in every corner. You work out your salvation that Jesus has given you. You work it out in every aspect of your life. That is not telling you to work it out. Like a 30-minute workout to sweat so that you can earn something. We've already earned it. Well, we don't haven't earned it. We've already been given it. Now we act out of gratefulness because we didn't deserve it. Somebody's done all the grunt work. Now we're reaping the benefits. But he says, out of that, now show yourself like you are like Christ. So you see, that's what Paul's standard, that's how he does it. So we see his Christology, and then he says, but then I call on God as my witness. Verse 23 back in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. Not that we lord it over you over your faith, but we work with you for uh, your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now notice what Paul is doing. Paul is telling the reason why he didn't come was because of you. It wasn't because of him. It was because of you. I'm doing this because of you. What did we just read? Jesus did nothing for himself, but all for the glory of God and for you. This is what he is saying here. He did it for you. He is now talking about redemption. He is willing to give himself. He doesn't want his reputations re- uh, resumed. He wants 
who they are in Christ to be lifted up so that then it makes sense that all of this came from Paul, not from these guys. So what Paul is doing, he's not rushing in. Notice he says, I don't want it lorded over to you. What does he has? He has the apostolic hammer. He has the credentials. He has the gunpowder as the apostle to come into town and clean house. But he doesn't. He goes, I don't want to come in and lord it over you. What a pastoral heart. He doesn't want to come in. He leaves because he knows if he stays any longer, it's going to be ugly. It's not going to be productive. He's saying, I'm not coming back again because I don't think it's worth it because I want you to work this out. I want you to understand because you've read this. I want the Spirit of God to work in your life. I want you to grasp this for yourselves, as he says. He goes, I don't want it lord over your faith, but I want we work it with you for your joy so that you stand firm in your faith. He's got a pastoral heart. You don't come in there gunslinging. You don't come in there with a hammer because you and I know that everyone looks like a nail when you, hand, when you have a hammer in your hand. You don't go after people with a hammer. Now, there's a time. He's coming with a hammer, right? Chapter 13, I told you, I'll be back. And he means it from a church discipline perspective. And so what is he doing now? He is showing what they call in theological frame soteriology. He is now showing in the doctrine of salvation. He is willing to be like Christ to give his life and his reputation for the benefit of these people. That's what he's doing. He says, not that we lord it over you, but that we work with you. We want you. I'm here to come alongside of you. I want you to grow in your faith. Because if I come with a hammer, how will you grow? It's not do it my way or the highway. For if I cause you pain, he goes, where is there? Who is the one that's going to make me glad? As I did, he goes, as I wrote, when I came that I might not suffer pain, in verse 3, from those who should have made rejoice. Paul is saying, these people, the majority of the people have changed. He is showing love. He is showing restraint. He is showing that he is willing to sacrifice his reputation. He's not there to be restored. He's there for them to recognize who God has made him and how God has used him in their life. So he is willing to come back to let them work it out because now the majority from Titus is saying, hey, they got it made. I mean, I'm sorry, they haven't got it made. They've made it better. They've been restored. They now are following Paul. But there's this group of people that are still following these super apostles. So what is Paul doing? Instead of going there and duking it out, he's saying, I'm giving him time. I'm finding out if God's going to, I'm having the patience of Christ to see if these people can that work this out in their life and them come to understand who God is, come to understand who Christ is, then ultimately come to understand who I am. That's what he's saying. He's showing restraint because of his understanding of redemption and understanding that we are called, all of us are called to absorb sin, folks. That's what forgiveness is. We break a window. If you break it, somebody's got to fix it. You walk away, somebody's got to fix that. So are we willing, we understand that love covers a multitude of sins. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is absorbing Willing to absorb that which needs to be absorbed. Jesus absorbed it all, but in our daily lives, within our relationships with our church, 
Are we willing to forgive, to absorb that loss? It wasn't your loss, but you're taking it on just so that it would edify and help other people grow in their faith. Somebody has to make that up, and that's what Paul's willing to do. Paul's willing to do that. He says, I felt sure, all of you, that my joy would be with all of you. And I wrote out of much affliction and anguish of heart, he says, because, and many tears, because I, I, I do not want to cause you pain, but I want you to know of the abundance of love that our Savior had for you. I want to reflect that kind of love to you. And that's how we're supposed to work as a church. Because in chapter 2, verses 5, in closing in verses 5 and 11, he now talks to us about the nature of a church. We've learned about theology, we've learned about Christology, we've learned about soteriology, now we're learning about ecclesiology, the church. And he says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has, not, he has caused it not to me only, he's talking about someone who has maybe who's friends with Paul or has been a loyal follower of Paul is now siding with the super apostles and has now turned against Paul. And Paul is upset about that. And so he says, he has not just caused it to me, but it, not to put it too severely, he's done it to all of you. Right? The body is a members, but we're all connected. If my toe gets stubbed, doesn't my head hurt? If I hit my finger with a hammer, doesn't that hurt my entire body? Paul is talking about the doctrine of the church. He is saying that we're made up of many parts, and when one part suffers, we all suffer. That's why he's saying, someone has to absorb this. Someone can't pass judgment. Somebody's got to get all the answers before you carry a grudge, before you have hatred or bitterness, before you understand that you now are going to hold this into yourself. It is not good for you. But we need to resolve this. And when it's resolved, we move on and we rejoice that God is a God of forgiveness. Because he says here, he says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Evidently, they listened to Paul because he says, I wanted to know if you were going to be obedient. And what did he do? He gave them clear directions of what to do with that fellow in the Corinthian church that was committing incest. What did he say? He says, throw them out of the church. Hand him over to Satan. Let this man gain some godly sorrow. So what we have in our churches is that people who don't want to do that because they wouldn't say that Jesus would do that. And they wouldn't say that's not a loving thing to do is to call somebody on in their sin and, and uh, in their error in life. But the Bible teaches us that that is really what we're supposed to do. We are to be a place of discipline. A place where we hold ourselves, as he says in that book, I was telling you, someone, a healthy church member is someone who seeks discipline and be a part of a place. Now, you don't do it like at the first blink and the first sneeze, you throw somebody out. But the problem is that Paul was saying it wasn't that they weren't doing it, it's that they, now they did it, and now they won't let the guy back in. And if you read church history, there are people that wanted people to suffer for weeks and months and years. How much suffering are they? How much do they really need to repent before is enough? And Paul says, listen, if he has shown godly sorrow, that's enough. If he wants to be rejoined back to the church, if he wants to come back in, if he, know that he, made it, he knows that he made a terrible mistake, 
That's an indicator. Accept them back in. So we have two sides. We have something not being done, and then we have something being done so extremely that he says what's going to happen is that, that if we don't let that person in, that godly sorrow is going to turn that man sour and off. And folks, in my ministry, that's exactly what happens. Exactly what happens. We have two people in a church that have committed a sin. And notice he says it affects the entire church. We don't do things privately when we're in a family or in a group. It affects everybody. And so he says, so, you know, Paul says that's why we suffer. And our church suffered. Maybe not that the word got out, but you could feel that it was an awful feeling of darkness come over to church when these two people who were prominent people in our church entered into a relationship that was ungodly. And the one person left the church, left his position, wouldn't come. I had to go chase him because he felt so bad that he was just, he was distraught, crying. The other person said, yeah. And after, you know, people, I'm tough. Sometimes I'm tough. You know that I'm, you know, I'm very convicted about certain things. But, you know, I don't jump very quickly to things it took weeks and weeks and weeks of counseling. This person being at my house and being with my wife and talking with this person and then bringing a group of other, small group of other people, of friends in the church to talk to this person. And ultimately this person said, I don't care. I don't think I did anything wrong. But you did. Do you see how it's affecting? And then, you know what the complications of all this is? Is that people started talking about it in the church. So what does that open up for me? Now I need to go after those people. So then I went to these people and I said, you keep your mouth shut. Who are you to talk? Who are you to tell tales outside of our home? Who do you think you are? You keep your mouth shut or you'll be getting what this other person's getting. Do you see how this is destroying? That's where Paul, right? I mean, the, the writer of Hebrews says, make sure that you get to the root of bitterness because it affects the entire church. Do you see where the leaven ruins the entire batch? And what happens, ultimately, I'll tell you, this person repented, got restored. And that's what discipline is all about. It is not knocking heads off. It is about redemption and restoration. It is about restoring that person back. That's what brings the body joy. But this poor boat, he just never felt that he was ever welcomed back. He never felt people never trusted him. People, and I, to my sadness and to my promotion and to do everything, who I'm still friends with them, left the church just to have nothing, and never has gone back to church again. Because it was a godly sorrow that went, went too far. How far? Where, tell me where you become God to say that this person has suffered enough. Show me the thermometer out front of the church saying, yep, he did it. Nowhere. That's where Paul is saying, that's what happens, he says. If you don't know that this is going on, realizing that this is Satan's scheme, he says. I don't want you to be ignorant. He knows that they're not ignorant. I, don't want, I want you to realize that this is spiritual warfare, folks. He goes, I want you to realize that this is really spiritual warfare. His, this is Satan's schemes. He didn't have to help you guys in 1 Corinthians. You guys were doing a great job. He was in the stands as a spectator clapping. 
Now, the change has happened. The Spirit of God has come upon these people. They have repented. They are changing their ways. They're accepting the Word of God. They are now looking at the restoration of this individual. And Paul says, you better let this guy come in. He's grieved enough. He says, because Jesus accepted you guys. Jesus, you repented, and he accepted you. What makes you better than him? So we see the nature of the church is a redemptive, restorative group of people to do that because they have an understanding of who God is, their understanding of who Christ is, their understanding of redemption. That's why we are the church. That's what Paul is writing to these people. It's quarter of, I understand there's strawberries waiting. But this is so important, folks. It's so relevant to this church. It's so relevant to the church. Because you know what? You guys, I know you guys think you're special, but you're not. <laughs> I have been in not only five churches in my life as a pastor, and this is a sermon that needs to be preached in every one of them. Because why? Because the church is made up of sinners like you and me. And that's why we have to trust and understand what the gospel is all about. That's why the gospel can never not be preached in the church. It needs to be continued to be preached out. And this is where we talk about, again, I'm, I'm going to deviate one more second. But this is where you talk about where you want a pastor who is going to be involved in evangelism and involved in missions, all this other stuff, which I think is great. Everybody wants that. But you know where it's done? This is the hub. This is where it's done. This is where the seeds are planted. This is where those thoughts are brought in and then fed and fleshed out. And then maybe God will work in your heart. And God will put you in the heart of an evangelist or of a missionary or people who want to reach out to do certain things. That's who the pastor is. That, not a person to do it, but a person to proclaim it from the Bible, proclaim it from the scriptures so that you, the ministers of the church would do the very work of evangelists, do the very work of missionaries, do the work of counseling, do the work of disciplers, do the work of prayer warriors. That's the end of my advertisement. Let's pray. Dear God, we do thank you so much for being a God who is so patient and kind with us. And Lord, we are thankful, how thankful we are that you have prepared and preserved this word for us. This word is timeless, Lord. It is eternal. We thank you for that. The principles that we have been given in this book are principles that are theological. And we hear people say, oh, I don't like theology. Theology divide. Love unites. Well, Lord, you and I know that that's a, a lie from Satan. There's another scheme that he's used in the church. And so, Lord, I thank you for the people that are here who don't believe that. I thank you, Lord, for the work that you have done here. I thank you for this body. I thank you that you show signs constantly of your endearing, enduring love for them. How you preserve these people together. It's a testimony 
to your power and love to them, Lord, and we thank you for that. And I pray their blessing upon them, Lord, as they continue to strive to serve you and to love you and to be the church, that, Father, that they do not forget their first love, who is you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.